G'day everyone. Happy New Year. Happy New Podcast Year. Life in the Peloton is back. I'm happy to be back and bring you some more episodes this year. We've got some exciting stuff coming up. I've had a great off season and I'm Mitch Stocker. As you know, or as maybe you don't know, I was a professional cyclist last year. I've retired and now I'm into the abyss the next year of what it is going to be like. And I'm pretty excited. You're probably wondering what life in the peloton is looking like for this year. We've got some exciting news because we've got a new title sponsor for life in the peloton this year, a brand that I've been able to work with the last three years, a brand that everyone knows about, Rafa. How exciting to have them on board this year. They're going to be our title sponsor. I've had the chance to work with them over the last three years at my team, EF Nippo. Well, sorry, my old team, EF Nippo. And I got firsthand to experience what it was like working with such a company. And you think about them, they changed the kick game way back when they started sponsoring Team Sky. And then right through to today, you see it with the Canyon women's team, the design that they do but also with our team, EF Nippo, the design. But I can tell you firsthand, the quality of the kit is awesome. I love wearing that stuff. I love being a bit of a test pilot for their, some of their new stuff. I get to try the new stuff, give my feedback, and ultimately see what it develops into. I love working with the company, and I'm pretty damn excited to have them on board this year with Life in the Peloton. That's something really exciting, and I know you guys, if you haven't tried Rafa Kit, you've got to go and try it. Anyone out there listening who has got it is going to agree with me. The stuff is the bomb. It's the best stuff out there, that's for sure. So they're on board this year for Life in the Peloton. They're our title sponsor. They've come on the ride with us and going to help us produce the episodes as well and give us some ideas and just work together like a collaboration. So I'm really, really looking forward to working with them this year. Now you're probably wondering about what the podcast is actually going to be this year. It's Life in the Peloton. Now, I'm still going to be writing this year. I'm going to be writing some alternate events for EF. I'm going to be the alternate writer for EF, a little bit like what Lockie did, but maybe not as extreme. I'm going to be based in Australia, maybe traveling around a little bit as well and doing some gravel events, documenting them along the way. I know you guys really enjoyed my Sweden trip last year, so I thought, well, hang on, maybe you can come on the ride with me a little bit as well. But it's not all just about me. I still want to keep myself involved with the world tour and touch in every so often with the world tour and see what's happening in that peloton as well. So you're sort of getting an idea. It's going to be life in the peloton, but what I'm doing this year is discovering all the different pelotons. The pelotons outside of what I've been racing in the last 15 years. Now it's about getting back to the roots, going to these events, going to the club events, going to bunch rides, meeting commuters, whatever it is, there's pelotons out there, many, many pelotons. And I want to get out there and discover them. Find out what life is like in the peloton. All these different pelotons. So you're going to be coming along with a ride with me. We're going to be meeting some different people out there. But the one thing in common is the love for the bike. We're still going to touch in with the world too. I see what those crazy guys are doing as well. See if I can have a laugh about some of those races they're doing. Of course, speak to Luke Durbridge. And we're going to meet heaps of heaps of different guests this year. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about my journey that I'm going to get to do as well on the bike. And I hope you guys are going to enjoy coming along the ride with me. There'll still be Talking Luft as always, which is the DVDs extras. Whatever we have as a guest that week, we normally try and back it up with a little extras with them. Some questions about style, about their epic rides, about what they drink, whether it's coffee or booze or whatever that is as well. Find out some little extras. Try and sneak in a few pros as well because they're always funny to talk to about their little intricacies and superstitions and stuff too. So that's what's coming up this year in Life in the Peloton. What i got coming up for you now is a fantastic episode that I was able to record with my old coach, and it's coming off the back of what I just said now, this new world I'm coming into. And I thought, well, what am I coming into? What have I come from? I've come from this intensive world tour training, this really attention to detail, specifics, My whole life is about training performance. Suddenly I drop back to this other world, which everyone listening here I know knows, is like, well, you've got to squeeze in training when you can. And that's a new world for me. I'm trying to understand that. How much training do I really need to do? Do I still need to do 20 hours a week? Or can I back it back? You know, previously before, five, 10 hours a week was considered a week off. Now that could be all I'm getting in. So it's really interesting. I I was actually just a bit baffled about what I should do. So I called up Kev, who doesn't coach me anymore, but he's a good friend of mine, Kevin Poulton, and I wanted to chat to him about that. 
First, we're going to touch on what's happening in the world tour at the moment because I feel like that has just really gone on fast forward now. As you've seen from the racing, it's so fast, it's so furious. The training is the same thing. But then we're going to drop into what we need to do as a non-pro, how do we train? And I'm hoping that's going to relate to everyone, but especially to me in what I get to do. Guys, I hope you can enjoy this one. Sit back and enjoy the first episode of Life in the Peloton brought to you by Rafa for 2022. Guys, enjoy. Well, here we are. I'm very excited. I'm sitting back with my old coach, Kevin Poulton, and we're on the first podcast of the year. Kev, it feels so strange. I don't get to talk to you as much as we used to anymore. So I was like, I've got to get you on the podcast. If I if I can't talk to you every day about my training, let's just do a podcast together. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. And uh, like you say, it's uh, a strange feeling where we're talking about you know, the season ahead and, and the season just gone, but without that pressure of uh, performance and race goals and so on. So yeah, it's good to, good to be speaking with you. Well, I'll let you introduce yourself because you've now transitioned a little bit over the off season into a new job. Um, you were training me last year. Now, fill everyone in and myself in what your next year looks like. You are a trainer of World Tour riders. Um, you've previously been working on Zwift. We spoke about Zwift back in the day. But now you've actually moved on in the last 12 months and going on to next year, just so everyone gets a little bit of background about who you are and what you do. Yeah, okay. Look, it's always uh, hard to talk about yourself. For me, it's always about the athlete, not myself as a coach. So, yeah, hard one to, to do. But, look, I've been head coach of World Tour teams with Katusha. Obviously, there's the Matt Heyman story with Roubaix and so on. Spent the last couple of years coaching World Tour riders uh, personally um, and had success with guys like Michael Valgren at the World Championships in, in third place. And for 2022, I've uh, joined UAE Team Emirates and looking after the sprint group there, but also keeping uh, a few other uh, professional riders with other teams as well. So always been uh, in that that area of world tour riders and competition and so on. But with Zwift, uh, indoor cycling has been a, a big part of, of my progress and I guess um, my my stature in some ways. And I've moved on to a, a different project, uh, indoor virtual platform coming from the Middle East as well called My Whoosh, where incidentally we have some of the biggest prize money races in the world, if not the biggest. <laughs> I did see that. And I, I, I noticed that you never really alluded me to those because I would have wrapped them up, no doubt, with my, uh, my online ability. But now it's becoming a bit more out there and available to the, to the whole world, isn't it? Well, this is probably a podcast in itself, but yeah, just quickly, you know, yeah. indoor indoor racing, it's uh, it's a thing now, whether you love it or hate it, it's here, it's here to stay. So I think everyone's going through a phase of working out how they can benefit from it, how they fit into it. Look, we know it's going to be a demonstration sport at the Olympics at Paris and then uh, in LA 2028, possibly a real Olympic medal virtual sport. So it's here and I think it's in everyone's best interest to jump on board and work out how they can benefit from it, how they can be part of it and uh, yeah, be part of uh, the, the scene of indoor cycling. It is another discipline. I, mean, I know we're segueing here because this is not what we want to talk about today, but it is very interesting because I was speaking to someone just the other day about this who's very good and uh, went to the world championships and he was going toe-to-toe with me out riding and not that that's that hard to do these days, but... I was saying, we were talking about it, it's a different discipline, you know, and a lot of pro riders in the lockdown couldn't handle it that they, and we spoke about this already, that they couldn't just go in there and win Zwift. Of course, we're going to be competitive, but it's a different discipline itself. It's got different skills, similar physical ability, but you've got to know how to work the system, don't you? Yeah, there's the gaming element to it, but this is where COVID was a positive in some ways for indoor cycling because it got you, the professional, onto the indoor world and we were able to capture a lot of that data and we know what world tour limits are and to see that the world tour guys weren't producing that indoors was good for us to record that 
But what we've also found now is that, like you said, it's a certain kind of rider that wins these these races. And we know that the current indoor world champion is a German guy, Jason Osborne. He was a rower, I think, if I'm correct there, but someone that's come out of nowhere with just a big aerobic engine. But I was actually talking to someone this morning about this. What we've found now is that the biggest differentiator for indoor riders is that 30-second to one-minute power. That's where people are hitting world tour and just above into that realm of world tour numbers. Everything else is quite stable and acceptable and normal, but it's that 30 second and one minute power, which is what is going to make you a good indoor rider. Let's leave that sit for a minute because what I want to talk today about, and everyone's probably sitting back there going, well, is this going to be a real technical one? This is what I'm starting to discover now. I'm a retired rider. I'm back in Australia and I've just started to train again. You might be thinking, why is this guy starting to train again? Well, I'm still going to be riding next year. I'm still going to be doing a few little gravel events and maybe 10 races a year. And I'm trying to work out how do I really even train now? You know, how do I not train like a pro is more or less what I want to know. But before we get into that, I really want to give everyone an insight on where I've come from and what I think is going on in the world tour at the moment. Because... I know things have changed over my whole career. When I think back what I used to do in Skill Shimano right till the end of my career with EF, it was very different, but that was over a span of 13 years. But where things really changed was in the last two or three years, I think, of my career. And I was working with Kev then, and I just followed him religiously, but I did notice the change. Now in the World Tour, I really do feel there is a change pressure to race. Everyone has to come to races, race fit, ready to go, on that start line it might seem strange to hear me say that because you know i say back in the day but you know 10 years ago there was an element of training in the race you could come to a race 80 percent fit and move through the race and and get ready get fit through racing now i feel like especially in the COVID area when we did this shortened program you had to come firing we didn't know if that was going to be the last race of the year contracts were on the line and you had to go from the gun that has continued on but i also felt that in training the hours were increasing. You know, a five-hour ride wasn't enough anymore. Six wasn't enough. Seven, if you weren't doing seven, that was, you know, something small. The hours got bigger. This is what I want to talk to Kev a little bit about now because I noticed it myself, but I went along for the ride, being a competitive guy. And maybe you thought, I'll let him go. What, what, what do you think, Kev? Yeah, you, you're completely right. And it really, as you know, it comes down to world tour points. In, in World Tour teams, when the team sorts out the season ahead, each rider is allocated an amount of World Tour points they're expected to gain during that season. Your haul might be in the first race of the year, might be two down under, and that's where you, you're going to get most of your points. So like you said, um, you have to come to every race fit. There's no more using races of preparation. And as you were saying that, I was thinking back to when did that change occur? And I would say it's probably been around for quite a while because I'm a, a fan of the sport and I remember Tour Down Under when it first started in Australia probably 20 years ago the guys would come out and they would be well overweight and they were here to lose weight and that certainly isn't the case now you come here you come here to win and that's and that's the case now well they were riding back from the stages and that was accepted you were riding to you're doing the race you were also tagging on another 50 60 some teams 100k after the race because mm. it was a training race and you had to get fit you had to race but you also had to get some k's in but i don't know is this i see it as quite a negative thing in my opinion because i feel like you know and at the end of the day you were training me so there's a bit of a go at you but i was on that let's call it the spindle you know the the mouse running in the in the treadmill there because i felt like am i using some of my my racing bullets out training am i trying to get the green light in training peaks am i trying to make sure that i go to the race feeling like i've achieved everything to a degree that i could relax in the race because i achieved everything out training what do you think about that well i've probably got a question in return to you but it comes down to race days you would know in your career the number of race days has probably decreased quite a lot to you know 90 is huge now and probably only 20 or 30 guys actually race 90 days or more from the whole peloton. Most guys are around 60 to 80, if not 40 to 60. So reduced race days means more specific training, more pressure to perform when you get to that race. And that's the situation you're in. And as your coach, 
I had to get you on the line ready to race. Um, and that's where the pressure comes from for both of us. But is there an opinion, and I feel like there's a DS opinion from that a lot of riders now, from the trainer's perspective, that the trainers now feel more pressure to have the rider ready to be fit to get selected for the race, that sometimes when they get to the race, they're underperforming. So as long as everything's ticked off in training, there's this pressure. You have to go out training. The, the teams are looking so intently at training that the training is sometimes, I wouldn't say more important than the racing, but it's getting almost up there as important as the racing now. Are you feeling yeah, that pressure? Yeah, it just made me think that in all the you know the last 10 years of, of coaching at this level, not once have I used a race as training for a rider. Um, has it crossed my mind that we're there for training or just to get the miles in, the race miles? We're there to do a job for someone else in the team or for yourself, your own ambition. Um, yeah, I've never used racing as training in, in my time. In terms of go back to, you know, using that bullet, you know, like when I say race bullets, I feel like sometimes some guys were so satisfied with the training they'd done and teams were so satisfied with them that if something didn't happen in the race, there was always that fallback. And I knew that myself sometimes. There was that fallback. Well, it could have been something else because I know I'm doing the data out training. There was no pressure on myself that I had to perform because you could almost escape with, I've done the good training and teams were happy enough with that guy's training well. So it must be something else. It must be the way the race went. It must be his bad positioning. Yeah, it really comes down to that purple patch where you reach your 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 peak form for whatever period and if you've got a racing block of four to six weeks whether it be the early season classics if you've done the training the team can rely on you to be good for that period of racing and when things line up when the race goes your way good luck goes your way you've got the form to take advantage of that but as you know um, ds's love to follow riders training and like this what you're alluding to here is that if you haven't prepared well and then perform poorly in the race there's two crosses mm. against your name but if you've done the training and they know you've come in there fit healthy the numbers are good it's something else so it kind of takes the pressure off me as the coach so it's a funny one now you mentioned that the ds coach and rider dynamic if the rider doesn't perform the first person they ask questions to is is the coach when the rider does well the ds is quite happy to take all the accolades there for directing him in the race quite well it's a funny one that one totally and that's and that's exactly what i was trying to get at and that sort of it breeds this sort of culture what i was trying to allude to and when you've got a good trainer they'll pull you back and when you don't have a good trainer or you're training yourself you get caught in this culture of more is better if i look like i'm doing more in the training if i'm doing more outside if i'm doing seven hours seven and a half hours i'm doing more efforts it's better because i'm i'm easing that pressure when i get to the races that's what i was trying to get at that's what i feel like this train is rolling now in the world tour that everyone's training harder everyone's looking for those you know one percenters you know they're trying to find these benefits yeah you're right but also because there's um and this is still a good thing there's so many old school riders from the 80s and 90s that are now Know, directing teams managers and so on they're used to doing the 1000k weeks the 250k rides and so on and for them that's normal but that's when they would use racing to prepare for other races and just get the miles in but now as we said the pressure to perform at each race is there it's hard for them to um, understand that that thought and I can go back to Katusha training camp days and Eric Zabel was was part of the team and during the training camp, he was doing more miles than the team were doing because he was used to going out. Mm. He, he could still line up as one of the riders in, in the team, but he was doing more more Ks than the riders in the training camp because he just wanted to do more more Ks, and that's where the year he came from. So it's actually coming back to training smarter, and I think, you know, not that I know what happened back in the day, but there was there was a different culture back in the day. You know, the early nineties, a different way of training, a different way of racing. And now, again, we're in a different era. And so it's training smarter. The coaches, the trainers have become a lot more important, would you think? Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll probably talk data soon. Um, and data allows us to measure everything and make more informed decisions. Uh, it also makes you more accountable. But look, without giving too much away, 
current Tour de France winner is training much less than the Tour de France winner from 10 years ago, volume-wise, mm. especially this time of the season. And that's, that's something that would surprise most people. Like There used to be, for a GC rider, um, the goal was to hit consecutive weeks of 30 hours before February with so many metres of climbing achieved each week. That was kind of the, uh, the go-to um, point to reach in, in training for a GC rider. But our current winner has debunked that and is training less and training differently. So everything you've just said is correct. Like it is more specific, less volume, training training harder, um, but then also just uh, hitting certain races ready to win. So the curve's already happened. The peak is, and now we're slowly finding back that we've we've reached the maximum. That's too much. Mm. And we've realized, okay, let's just tone it back a bit. Look, in some ways, it's easy to train long and slow all day. Obviously, you get fatigued and you get tired, but most people can roll out the driveway every day and, and do their you know, two hours every day or their three hours, whatever their, their level is, and can do that day in and day out. But to perform and, and to beat your peak level, you have to train differently and, and more isn't better. Well, that's a great segue because that's what I'm moving into. I'm moving away from the peloton, as we all know. And having trained as a pro for 15 years or so, it's sort of ingrained in me to just go out and ride. You know, a, a great example is when I came back and I started training after a couple of months away from the bike, I thought, oh, I better get back on the bike. I had a quick look back at what I did this time last year. I thought, all right, I started with a 10-hour week. I'll do 10 hours. The next week, I thought, oh, I'll, I'll just sort of do 15 hours. Yeah, that's okay. I came to the 20-hour week and I thought, what am I doing this for? Do I need 20 hours? You know, this is something that I'm sort of trying to uncover right now is now I'm not training for the demands of the world tour. What do I really need to do? You know, obviously I need to set my goals of what I want to achieve. But I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what is the minimum? Because for me to do a six hour week or eight hour week, that would have been almost considered a week off as a pro. But now there's actually some benefits in that. Tell me a little bit about firstly, before we get into the the actual program, me coming off riding for 15 years, what sort of benefits do you think I have as a rider opposed to someone who has never really ridden before and taking up cycling and starting to train? Me dropping down to that level of training, let's just say six to 10 hours a week, what sort of difference will I have to that you know, everyday person? Have I got some muscle memory there, some residual endurance? I don't know, what are the right words there? Psychological threshold pain levels. You know, What have I got up my sleeve that... These guys don't. Yeah, there's plenty of positives there. But the main point is, like everybody else, you're going to lose fitness as fast as the mere mortals like us. So two weeks of no training, you're going to lose fitness. Within a month, you're going to lose uh, a large amount of your VO2 fitness as well. So you're going to detrain just like anybody else. But what you do have, you talk about residual muscle memory there. It is a thing. It is controversial, that topic. Um, some people believe it, some don't. But I'm, I'm one of the believers and what it comes down to is that you're going to lose your fitness as fast as anybody else but from your years of training in your muscle cells you actually uh, produce more nuclei and from that that allows you to return to uh, your peak fitness faster than everybody else so for anyone that trains regularly and they have their Christmas period off and then yeah. they come back a month later and it takes them two weeks to get some fitness back, that's because of their um, their volume, their regularity of, of training and so on. And that comes down to muscle nuclei, um, having more of those. And from that, your muscles know to produce more mitochondria, which make you more aerobically efficient and so on. And, and that's how we come back to um, our, our peak level of fitness faster. So are those, those pathways that, I guess, use the word memory, it's there. The body knows what to do. It's definitely there. And it's, it's also the same sense in a biomechanic sense as well. So, um, you know, if, if as a junior you were a track rider, you have a really nice pedal stroke, you're nice and fluid and smooth and so on, you have 10 years off, um, you know, families and work and so on, and you come back and start riding later in life, you're going to be that same smooth pedal as well mm. because there's that muscle memory there as well. So it does exist. It exists in a biomechanic sense and also in a cardiovascular sense as well. What do you think about the psychological side of things? Because, you know, I was out riding the other day and I bit off a bit more than I could chew on the other day, the other week, and I decided to go and do a 230k ride. You know, I wasn't fit. 
I wasn't at the level to do that and these guys were flying along and I sort of 100k to go I was really in a bad way but somehow I was able to get through that a few guys dropped off caught the train home did some things like that and I was able to suffer suffer through it okay everyone listening here goes yeah what, what's this guy talking about he just did you know Paris-Roubaix and a whole other lot of other long races but you've got to remember I was trained for those races and I was ready and they're different beast what I noticed was weirdly I sort of went into this I've been here before this hurts it wasn't easy for me but I sort of knew how to handle it psychologically I didn't get overwhelmed by it do you think that's a bit of a, a benefit I've sort of got in my back pocket you know I think that's your personality trait where you just know how to suffer and you're the kind of person that if you say you're going to do something no matter what you're going to do it you're going to achieve that and it was like in training where if it was on your your calendar to to, to do you would do it religiously um, without any faults at all so i think that's more a personality trait whereas some people for whatever reason haven't got that drive to, to suffer like that or uh, for you it's an intrinsic goal that the group set out to do 230k today you're going to do it no matter what that's for me that's just a personality trait but it also reminds me that you and I throughout a season we had as you said so many mental bullets where we could reach the limit maybe twice and, and that was enough if we were hitting that limit you know every six or seven weeks that would just be too much so we sort of knew when to to reflect and when to pull back a little bit throughout the season but at the same time I think you kind of enjoyed getting to there because you knew you'd worked hard and when you get to that point and then you could sort of relax knowing that the hard work is done but we've reached our limit there how did you know when i'd reached that limit when i would get those phone calls <laughs> of you out on the bike and you'd leave those video messages basically <laughs> abusing me <laughs> asking questions and I thought, okay now it's time to review the training <laughs> you had to wait to get the call i had to wait till the girls had left the room because i knew there'd be some nice colorful language in it <laughs> I can't do this. I'm too f-ing fatigued. I can't just have one day off and suddenly go out and rip one minute intervals. I can't even hold 600 watts. F-ed. That was the most beautiful thing about the relationship. I think about the the coach rider relationship, and I've I've stressed this with a lot of people I've spoken to. Maybe not so much on the podcast, but if any young guy asks me about coaches, whatever, I said it's sometimes for me it's not necessarily about the science. Obviously that's a massive part of it, but it's about the connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that you and I were able to have that I could speak openly and honestly to you. And I felt like I, I hope I wasn't complaining every other week, but when it came, you knew, all right, this is this is real, isn't it? No, look, it's a mutual respect because if I'm going to ask you to go and ride seven hours in the rain tomorrow, I need to have a damn good reason why you're doing that. And mm. for you to have that confidence and trust that, yeah, there's a reason I'm doing this, I'm going to go out and get it done, it's just a, a big respect from my side as well. When you talk about the psychological traits or you know that's just my personality what's the sort of common theme through let's say the world tour or the professional peloton not to exclude guys who aren't quite in the world tour is that a common trait and you just would imagine that is but maybe that's not exactly true with everyone like you said yeah if you sent me a program this is something that surprised me if i set a program for mitch i just assumed everyone did their program to a t to the minute that's the way i did things every effort and if I couldn't do an effort, there was a damn good reason why I couldn't, or I'd just send you one of those abusive messages. That's not necessarily the case, or is is that more the case? What is it? It's a good point. It's, again, it's something that was raised uh, today with myself and an athlete, uh, a young guy about to go Australian, about to go overseas and race under 23. And I just applauded him today for training so professionally and doing everything correctly. And then on the other side of the coin, there's guys at World Tour that don't train well, they could do so much better if they applied themselves like, um, you know, someone trying to get to there did, they would do so much better. And as you know, a lot of professional riders, they make it to the world tour and they become comfortable and they mm. forget to challenge themselves and they just go through the motions. They know what the minimum is to do to stay there. But the guys that do everything right, they're the guys that win. And I'm always happy to give a big um, shout out to Caleb Ewan. Um, you know, I've coached a lot of sprinters in different teams and, and that guy just does everything 100% perfect professionally uh, and that's why, he's, that's why he's so good. And from a, from a young age, you had a lot of influence with him when he was just a young guy before he went across, didn't he? 
Yeah, when he was young as well and when he's professional, um, when he's professional as well. Um, but not just Caleb. And it's not just uh, an Australian thing. Um, a lot of, um, you know, Michael Valgren, another example, just does everything perfectly right. And that's why he came third in the World Championships. And it's not to criticise people. Um, as you know, it's just such a huge mental aspect and sacrifice that, that people make. But, yeah, there certainly is a big part of that is personality that, uh, to really make the most of their gift, their their ability, their fitness, um, to train well, to get the most out of it. Uh, and not everyone does that, even at World Tour level. So have a listen to this amateur. I'm heading up to Sweden in the summer last year, Savannah Tempot, the length of Sweden, 2,100k in about seven days. Do I have any bikepacking bags? No. Not really. I got a front bag. That's not going to get me through. I'd heard about this brand, Restrap. Taylor Finney was using it and I thought, ah, I'll just give that a whirl. So I ordered some stuff and the day that it arrived at my house, I knew that I'd done the right thing. I pulled the bags out of the box. Every bag had been personally signed off by the person that produced it. I thought, wow, I wonder how this is going to go. Of course, I didn't test it. I just went straight into the event and just hoped for the best. And without fail, they were awesome. Absolutely loved it. Got through the trip. Beautiful. What a test event for me anyway. And for the bag. All the stuff is produced in-house in Leeds in Yorkshire. Everyone who works here is a bikepacking enthusiast. It's done with passion, with love. If they don't like something, they go out and test it. They go and do proper trips and they understand what is needed to produce a bikepacking bag. I love using their stuff. I keep having a bag on my bike. Nine times out of 10, I've got a restrap bag on my bike just because I love carrying a little bit of extra stuff that I don't need. Go and check them out, restrap.com. I know you're going to love it because they've thrown in a little 10% discount, Peloton 10, P-E-L-O-T-O-N 10. Throw that in when you're ordering some stuff. If you're a bike packer, if you're a commuter, or you're someone who just needs to carry too much stuff on your bike, guaranteed you're going to love this stuff. Just remember, Peloton 10, Restrap.com. That's what I do. That's what I have on my bike. You'd be crazy not to. Restrap.com, R-E-S-T-R-A-P.com. Go check them out. Now back to the episode. Well, let's talk about what I'm going to do now. And we did sort of speak about this before. What I want you to help me understand is, what do I really need to do now to tick along? You know, I'm so used to doing this big base and you speak about this, create a base, then we've got a platform to work off for the whole year um, and then we're always going to have a good amount of time to peak up for things and our form's always going to be within reach because we've done that base. I'm entering sort of a new realm and, and meeting different guys, going on bunch rides. I've got a bit of a legacy I want to uphold. I don't want to suddenly just start getting dropped but at the end of the day, I can't put the time in. I've, I've got to do other things. I've got three kids, well, one on two and one on the way. I can't go out and do 20 hours like I quickly found out. How am I going to still uphold this legacy or do these races that are going to be on my program? What does this year look like for me, Kev? And, and for everyone listening out there, how can they achieve what they want to achieve as you know an everyday sort of person trying to be a fit with small goals along the way, but also just hang in the bunch or maybe drop someone in a bunch? Yeah, look, obviously it's a big question, but a few guidelines that I would recommend people put in place is that, first of all, keep in mind that to put enough stress on your body to force adaptation, to have peaks throughout the season, you're looking at a minimum of six weeks, six hours a week, sorry, of training. Um, It might not sound like much, but when you've got a job, family, um, other life stresses, you know, an hour a day, six days a week is is, uh, is is realistic for many people. So aim for that six hours a week. And then when you do have time to do that longer ride on the weekend, even if every month you're doing a three-hour ride, that three-hour ride is going to play a big part in, in mm. your endurance as well. But also for you specifically, I think about the mental aspect of you would go out and train on your own for much of the season and that's something that you don't need to do so much now. Get out and enjoy it. Like you say, enjoy the bunch rides and so on. But in your situation, there's a type of training we put in place called block periodization. And it's basically a week of intensive training 
in a specific area. It might be a week of VO2 intervals or it might be a week of threshold intervals or um, sprint intervals. And then you're doing three weeks of your volume with a bunch rides. And in those other three weeks, each week you would do one sort of touch-up session on, on VO2, which, which you did in the first week. So when I think about how you can maintain your high level of fitness and be competitive, I would recommend do a week basically on your own and do your, your race specificity. Obviously, you've done some testing beforehand and if the race requires lots of VO2 work and so on, you're going to do a week of um, VO2 intervals. It'd be three or four VO2 sessions in a week and then you go and do your bunch rides for three weeks after that with one day a week touching on VO2 again. And that's probably the best way to look at the season ahead. But my bunch rides that I've been going on touch on VO2. I feel like, is there a danger now that every session I'm doing, it's going into intensity? You know, it's difficult for me riding around and being introduced to Strava now, going for comms, going on bunch rides, you know, bang for your buck, you sort of want to come home sweating. And I feel I'm starting to get into this world, something I was never into before. I was always scared to go on bunches when I was back in Melbourne because I was like, why do these guys go so hard? I've still got four hours to do after the end of this bunch. But I get that now. Everyone's coming down to the bunch. We've got an hour and a half just to kill ourselves. We want to come home feeling dead because then we've achieved something. What's the danger of actually touching in intensity pretty much every single ride? I think not much. It's more the mental aspect that you get to a point where you just can't take anymore. You just need a, a day away from having to be king of the bunch or hanging on to wheels, wherever it is. Physically, an hour a day hard, it's quite easy to recover from. You know, you're not going to deplete carbohydrates to any dangerous levels. Uh, you, you can recover from that quite quickly. So it really is more the mental aspect. So, but you also would naturally get to the point where you roll out the driveway and you know you need an easier day today from the previous day's ride. Mm. So the bunch rides uh, are fantastic. And that's where when you sit in the bunch, a lot of the, the benefits come from doing those short surges in the bunch, like you're doing these six-second surges all the time. And there was a study years ago, I think it was on Cadell Evans actually, when he won the World Championships and he rode the Tour of Spain before it. And the conversation was, did he get his form from the volume of a Grand Tour or was it from um, the volume sitting in the bunch? And what they found is that doing all those short surges has huge benefits on this thing called sodium potassium pump, which means you're basically replenishing the muscles faster, which makes you more aerobic. But the point more here efficient. is that more yeah. efficient. So sitting in the bunch and doing these small surges, you're not going to get that training on your own. So if you have reduced hours, bunch riding, whether you're sitting on the wheels or the one on the front driving the pace, you can use a bunch to meet your needs on that day quite easily. So is there any need to do base miles? As we yeah. say, base, you know, whether that's two hours, whether that's six hours. Yeah, for you to do uh, racing of uh, three plus hours, you do need um, that base period. And as we know, it allows you to be more specific when your peak period is. If you don't do that base period, all of a sudden you find, oh, I've got nice form this week, but I really wanted it in six weeks' time. So it's a bit, a bit of hit and miss when that good form comes along. Whereas with a bigger base, you can be more precise of when your peak form is and also the bigger the base the longer the peak period is as well do you think i need to go ahead and you know have a coach someone else to take control of this or you know is this something that one one thing i am enjoying is writing my own programs you know and when when things come on the fly being able to adapt with it you know there's a bunch ride today or i wake up and this is not going to happen today kids are in my bed and i can't go out training this sometimes this pressure of a coach is such a great thing because it gets you out on the bike. It gets you focused on something. But on the flip side, sometimes it can be, if you've got that mentality like me, you know, you feel a bit down if you can't achieve what someone put out there for you. Yeah. And again, another big question. For you personally, I think you need a period without a coach because you were always so professional and put unnecessary pressure sometimes on yourself to impress other people, coaches, DSs, teammates with your training that I, I think you need a, a break from that. And also um, you're experienced enough to know what's working for you. But then I would say later in the season, it'd be nice for you to come back to a coach because a coach is going to give you 
um, that information on, okay, we need to do some testing now to work out what you need to train for for your race coming up to be more specific. So you're naturally going to be fit and good for the rest of your your life. You're just a naturally good athlete. But to get the most out of your ability, you do need that last 10% which a coach is going to give you, that more race-specific training. And thinking about everyone out there listening and myself included, when we talk about this six to 10 hours, let's just say that's you know a nice little bracket that everyone can sort of achieve and push it out. I've been mixing my things up with a bit of running, you know, actually that's it, running and riding and mountain biking. What's your opinion on sort of cross training and stuff like that? You know, because not everyone can ride, you know, 10 hours a week. Sometimes it's just getting a cheeky run in in the morning or at the night. Are you, do you like the benefits of this cross training, what it does? And maybe it's not muscular sort of benefit, but it could be aerobic or what's, what's your opinion on all that? Yeah, I definitely support it and like it, but not at the detriment of the 10 hours of riding you have available. If you only have six hours a week to train and two hours of that is going to be yoga, that's not going to benefit you. So get that minimum training in first and then the extras provide a big benefit, particularly gym work and particularly for anyone over 30. Mm. Um, What you gain in terms of uh, increased testosterone, muscle mass, um, strength, obviously, it's it's huge, not just for your cycling-specific fitness, but for life as well. Um, after 30, if you don't use it, you lose it. The muscle fibers, um, you don't get them back, so you need to really um, delay that drop-off of muscle fibers, muscle mass, muscle strength, because you don't get it back. What about yourself? Like, are you implementing some of these sort of little tidbits you pick up for yourself? You know, we spoke about as a as a pro, it's all about trying to focus on these one percenters because you you're doing the ninety nine percent, and you just want to find the one percenters to make you better. But I feel like as a once you get back and you're doing normal work and other things, it's it's focusing on the ninety nine percent, the consistency. How have you found? as an ex-rider yourself, a re- ex-racer, what is the tricks that you use to focus on? Is it the 99% is the most important thing, the consistency? Yeah, it's just being consistent. Um, like, like I said before, you lose it very quickly. Uh, me personally, with travel and so on, before COVID, it was very hard to you know, string a month together of training. You know, I would travel for two weeks and not train, come back for two weeks and think, what's the point of training now? And next mm. thing you know, two years have gone by and you've gained five kilos. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not easy. But, again, um, as you said, the 99% is of consistency and, and gym work. Really, I would place an emphasis on those two things first. But certainly just being effective, um, effective training, the running and so on. You mentioned running before. Running is a funny one because it's um, super effective. Uh, you, know, you lose weight, falls off you. But obviously there's that, that risk of injury as well. But it is um, detrimental to certain performances. So if you're a pure sprinter, running is going to decrease your suppleness, your leg speed, uh, that peak power. But if you're a classics rider, a time trial, a triathlete, the running is going to be beneficial. So you just need to be aware of what sort of rider you are. All right. Well, let's let's get this ultimate program now. Everyone out there listening, myself included, we've got something. And I think what you said there before is a six-week period is what we want. We've got a goal coming six weeks' time. You've been going to this bunch ride every week. You've been getting your ass kicked. Me, there's a bunch ride in Melbourne called the Belgi. I've been getting my ass kicked there. I want to win the Belgi. Is it about focusing six weeks time now for me? And these races I'm going to do, is it the build up like I used to do for races, the slow build up, increasing the hours or consistency with that six to 10 hours, introducing you know, intensity? Are we trying to have this peak and trough in form throughout the year? Or is it just be to consistently be fit throughout the year? It's a big question, but off the top of your head and from your knowledge, how do you sort of advise myself or even guys like myself to reach these goals coming up in six weeks' time? But the main thing is the volume's not going to change. So you're going to get out and you're going to ride six days a week at least and you're going to do 10 hours a week at least. So the volume's going to stay the same. So what you're going to play around with is the high intensity that you 
uh, complete in that 10 hours. And then when you get more, uh, when you get closer to your, your goal event, uh, you need to start working out more specific training. And that's where you're going to put in place this block periodization where you're going to go away and do a week on your own, what you need for your event and be more specific to that. We talk about it takes six weeks to create change on the body to be more specific for anaerobic work, anaerobic change, that 30 seconds, now it's a three minute sort of effort. It takes about six to eight weeks to, to get peak change in that. For VO2 work, so your three to eight minute kind of effort, so if your race um, consists of that, it takes 10 to 12 weeks. So keep that in mind and work your way back from your goal event and then look at your bunch rides um, and look at your periodization from there. But the most important aspect is just the enjoyment of it, what's going to get mm. you out regularly. And then when you do the 10 hours regularly and you get two days of rain, you can take two days off guilt-free mm. and think, oh, it's pretty bad weather out there. I'm going to have a couple of days off or I'm going to ride indoors and, and do a session inside instead. Do you predict that if I sort of ticked along like that throughout the year that there could be a chance, say, six weeks out, someone goes to me, mate, I want you to come back and do one race in the world tour. Can I do that? Yeah, easy, easy. Like you, if you tick along 10 to 12 hours a week and then we're given six weeks notice that you're going to do a world tour race, we'd get you there. One day race or a tour? One day race. Let's not push it. <laughs> a really low level one day race, and yeah, you'll you'll finish, but you won't be with the bunch. Okay, yeah, great. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. Yeah. You enjoy every second of it too. <laughs> well, great, Kev. That's that's great. It's really it's really given me a little bit of hope here as we enter the new year, and I hope everyone listening is uh, getting a little bit of advice here about you know as we come on the new year and watch out set our goals coming up it's just sort of it's so weird for me to uncover that and you would know this once you get it ingrained in any work or any walk of life once you've done something for so long seems so weird to go back and do something else and still get the benefit from it so that's what i was really trying to pick your brain today and find out no you're right so like you know it's it's the whole new year new me kind of thing coming up and people are going to start um identifying their goals for the year ahead uh, but for the everyday person, you know, that has the job, the family and so on, it is about enjoyment and what's going to get you out there day in and day out. If it's the bunch rides, we can use them, like I said, to suit your needs on the day, whether you need a recovery ride and you sit on the wheels or you want to do some hard efforts, you get on the front. But it really comes back to we do need periods to work specifically on your race needs leading up to it. So let's just keep that in mind. Mm, the take-home message is, you know, consistency. If you don't feel good, it doesn't mean you have to do all the efforts or go hard or take the local Strava. Just get out and ride, come back, and then tomorrow's a new day and see how you feel then. Mm, exactly. Awesome, mate. Thanks for talking, and I guess I'll speak to you next time on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. We should do one on indoor training as well, and I'm looking forward to following your training and racing and see see how you go this season. Thanks, mate. Thank you. It was another great episode and like I said at the start of the episode, this episode is being brought to you by Rafa, our title sponsor this year at Life in the Peloton. A pretty good little collaboration between Life in the Peloton and Rafa. It's great teamwork and I love working with Rafa, especially because I see what they do with everyone out there in the world of cycling and that's what they want to do. They want to get people on bikes and let everyone understand what the beautiful thing is about cycling. Sort of what I like doing here with Life in the Peloton unraveling those layers and trying to peel back what life is like as a pro but also just bringing forward what we love about cycling that's what raf is trying to do as well they've been doing it for a lot longer than i have and they're doing it through the rcc club the rafa cycling club the biggest cycling club in the world what they do there is they get members on board they offer them the chance to get exclusive kit or you know just deals and just get them in bring it in feel the culture go to the clubhouse feel part of the club And you know what it's like being a part of any club, let alone a cycling club. You feel part of it. You feel belonging. And that's what Rafa are trying to create. Go across and check that out at rafa.cc. And guys, let's chat about this episode quickly. What did you think about it? 
Did you take anything away from it? I really was intrigued and Kev and I were getting in a bit of a debate at the start because what I thought was happening in the world tour, he has a different opinion of it, of course, because he's training us. But it was interesting to talk about it. And I tell you, it's been really, really interesting for me this last period since coming back to Australia and just understanding what I really need to do, that residual fitness I have that muscle memory, I've actually got it there. I'm understanding what I really need to have. And now as I put my program together, looking forward to 2022, those little events, I've got to tailor my program leading up to it. And it was great to talk to Kev about that. I hope you guys are able to take something out of that because I really try to hone it into what everyone out there listening might understand from that too. Because at the end of the day, we're sort of doing the same thing now. I might see you out on a bunch ride, make sure you say hello. We've got Talking Luft coming up next week. Kev's already been on Talking Luft. So I've got another special guest for you next week on Talking Luft. Stay tuned for that. Make sure you go back and have a listen to the whole catalog. Everything that we did with the cycling podcast over the last two years is going to be now up on this catalog at Life in the Peloton on our podcast host, Life in the Peloton. Wherever you listen to that, whether that's on Spotify, Apple, however you listen to it, it's going to be all there, the archive. Go back and listen to some classic episodes, have a laugh, get involved. And guys, I'm really happy to be back. Like I said, really, really happy with our sponsors this year, Rafa, and of course, Restrap in there. A big thanks to our producer, Will Jones. He's going to be producing all the episodes this year at Life in the Peloton. Lara behind the scenes, of course, doing all the stuff she does. We love her work there too. And guys, send your feedback in. Let me know what you think of new Life in the Peloton. Well, is it new? I don't know. Guys, let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your feedback. Send in some guest ideas and we'll try and get it out to you. I hope you guys are enjoying it. And we're back up and rolling. Until two weeks' time, Life on the Pelts will be back next week as Talking Luft. I'm Mitch Docker. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.